Hello and welcome to Delete, Delete, Engage, the podcast supercharging engagement at work with tips and insights from some of the world's finest communicators. Drew McMillan is Director of UK Communications and Engagement at management consulting company Deloitte. Drew has been honing his employee comms and engagement skills over a career spanning 26 years and has led colleague comms at BA, Virgin Trains and Ladbrokes along the way. Drew shared his thoughts on some of the biggest challenges facing employee communications today, including engaging a hybrid workforce and the importance of anchor days, the value of behavioural science, how we can help line managers better engage their teams, why organisations shouldn't get too hung up on engagement surveys, the future skill set needed to excel in internal comms, why it's nuts that we're so reliant on email as a comms channel, and why employees should be treated more like customers. Drew is open, eloquent, and really knows his onions when it comes to internal comms, so you're sure to pick up some really useful tips. Enjoy the podcast. So Drew, welcome to Delete, Delete, Engage. Now, believe it or not, you are the first acting internal comms leader that I've welcomed to the podcast, a pioneering first. I am delighted to have the accolade. Thanks for having me. Now, I'd just like to start, I know that you're currently Director of UK Comms and Engagement at Deloitte, but I'd like to start, if that's all right, by just looking back on your career a little bit, because you've been in internal comms for... 26 years, I think. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Um, now, I'd like to sort of just just talk a little bit about your experience from that time. But the first thing I wanted to talk to you about was um, the fact that you were at BA during lockdown when, when most of the world was told not to travel. And as the director of colleague comms at the time, what were the biggest challenges for you and your team during that period? I mean, there are some logistical challenges in that um, even within my team, the vast majority were furloughed. So you'll recall the government furlough scheme. uh, That was beneficial to airlines because we were hardly flying at all. So most BA colleagues were furloughed throughout the entire duration of the furlough period. That included HQ back office roles. So I went from having 15 people to three of us for more than six months. So Although there was less work to be done because there were less people, um, we were having to communicate really, really difficult stuff. And you'll remember some of the stuff that BA was in the news for around, uh, like many airlines, you know, significant uh, painful redundancy programs. So uh, it was me and two of my senior direct reports having to remind ourselves how to use the channels that we were used to directing other people how to use. Mm. We were using them ourselves. So mm. that was tricky. I think the other big challenge, of course, was uh, was one of stamina and some degree of maintaining mental well-being. And, and I'm sure that goes for many, many people that went through the pandemic. But it was particularly tough for us because BA was very much in the spotlight throughout that period it, it, it seems like forever ago now but um you know british airways in particular was headline news for a while uh, because of the acts we were having to make to survive basically and we, you know we as, as discussed a moment ago you've been in internal comms for a long time was that period with furloughs and the redundancies that ba was going through was that one of the most challenging periods of your career would you say oh with, without a doubt that was uh, not just a career defining period but i think a, probably a life-changing period and again not just for me i think i can probably speak for others that were that were in the organization 
at, at the time. Now, you know, in, in the two and a half decades that you've been doing uh, internal comms, what would you say have been the kind of the biggest changes that you've seen uh, to the internal comms and engagement role in that time? Um, well, it is now a role, right? So um, when yeah. I started in the 90s, back end of the 90s, internal comms was something that was kind of done side of desk in HR departments or in the marketing team or whatever, and there'd be somebody who might be writing a newsletter or or, or putting things on notice boards, um, sending faxes. I, uh, <laughs> I remember being a, a comms assistant and I would send fax news to um, depots. And today, fast forward, it is, uh, I think, a fairly well-regarded profession. It is a function in many organisations in its own right with a considerable voice and um, particularly on the engagement side uh, rather than pure comms as it were the ability to shape the workplace for for people so there's been a sort of seismic shift in a relatively short time around the credibility and the impact of, of, of the profession. Mm. And do you think now that it really has the ear of the C-suite in a way that it hasn't maybe in the past? Yeah, I think so, particularly if the practitioners are credible, and many are. Um, I have been fortunate in most of the organisations I've worked in where I've, for example, been as close to, if not closer than, um, some of my public relations or external comms colleagues to, to CEOs who, yes, are very, very, very concerned about external representations of their organizations but are, are focused mostly on on their employee uh, workforce now you joined deloitte five months ago yep. i think you said wasn't it um now prior to that you were you headed internal comms at ladbrooks virgin trains ba all of which are consumer facing organizations mm. now obviously deloitte is more of a b2b organization yeah, big business clients how have you found that's changed you know five months in how has that changed for you in terms of what you're doing and how you're doing it so you're right i mean i haven't i haven't been outside of the consumer space for a long time so going back into into professional services into b2b was quite a big decision for me the the hook is that at Deloitte we are trying to create consumer grade communications experiences for our people. So to be clear, I'm not client facing at, mm. at Deloitte. I'm not a mm. consultant. I'm you know one of the leaders helping to run the, the the firm, and we are committed to um, giving us even more competitive edge in the race for talent. Um, to ensuring sustainable growth for our firm and through just making it a better place to work mm. by using a lot of what you might call consumer um, thinking for that internal audience. Mm. So uh, very different culture, very, very different challenges, but the opportunities are the same opportunities, for example, I had at BA or Virgin, where again, we were trying to create more consumer grade uh, experiences for our people, rather than being thought of as sort of second class citizens yes. and 
lots of money going into customer proposition yes. and not a lot of money going into employee proposition. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. I mean, we 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 were talking here actually recently about the importance of treating your employees like customers, uh, giving that you know putting the same amount of insight and thought and creativity into content as you would with with customer comms. Well, well, yeah, particularly if if you think about an organisation like Deloitte, you know, we are selling brain power. Sure. You know, if you want a definition of a people business, mm. it is a it is a firm that sells thought mm. <laughs> to mm. to to its clients. So you you've got to keep those people feeling um, engaged. Sure, because it's a huge business, a huge global business. And how many employees? Yeah, do you have? so there's three hundred and seventy five thousand of us around the world. Um, of which twenty six thousand are in the UK. It's important to note that Deloitte is not actually one organization is a network yes. of member firms the uk being the most established and it's we were still globally headquartered but it's uh it's yeah there's an awful lot of us <laughs> around the world and it does your job uh, are you responsible for reaching all of those 350,000 employees no or? no we have uh a, a very federated model. So my responsibility is the twenty six thousand uh, in in the UK, which at the moment is more than enough for sure. me to be focusing on. It's still a big chunk of people, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's really interesting. Now, in terms of, uh, I mean, everyone has been sort of experiencing and experimenting with engagement in this sort of hybrid world that we're all now working in. Now, I, I was lucky enough to chat recently to a chap called Tom Kagodi, who's the future of work expert at Lloyd's Banking Group. Um, so he's helping them, you know, test and learn in the hybrid world. How's that been working for you and your team at Deloitte? Would you say? So we're super progressive on this at Deloitte and we made a big commitment before I joined to a philosophy that we call Deloitte Works. Um, you know, you can you can Google it, it's very well documented. We have decided to embrace fully a highly flexible philosophy about working pretty much wherever suits you best, as long as the work gets done. You know, we must focus on servicing the needs of our clients. We absolutely must. But there are lots of different ways of doing that. What we've been doing is, I guess, through the pandemic and in these last few months, which I guess we might call post-pandemic, maybe, mm -hmm. um, we've been shifting Deloitte Works from being an experiment, albeit an experiment that we are very committed to, to become absolutely business as usual. But we're still finding our feet. You know, we have managers who are still trying to adapt new ways of keeping their teams motivated and connected. Um, it's still a challenge for new joiners into the firm. And, you know, we, we have thousands of people joining the firm uh, every year. We're growing very, very quickly at the moment um, and joining in a hybrid world. And I was one of those people that joined yeah. in a hybrid world. It's the first time I've ever joined an organization without being pretty much full-time office-based. Um, so there are fundamental challenges. We've been addressing that in all sorts of ways, not least we are changing our physical office environments to be very different to the way they were before, so that when people do choose to come in to the office, those offices do not resemble perhaps the offices of three years ago. They are far more like uh, some of the shared working spaces you might have come across, uh, a WeWork or such uh, places where they're more about collaboration than sitting at a desk getting on with things because people do that stuff at home now. And it's really interesting that you're saying that you joined 
you know, during that period where it, you're not, you're not full time in an office. Now we have an office culture, or there is a people have a view of what an office culture is. And and when I was talking to Tom, actually, he talked about the fact that he's a big supporter of hybrid working, but did say that one of the big challenges is maintaining a connectedness to each other and to a culture, and also trust. Now on the culture piece, how do you what you know what is that culture if you're not actually in the office? How do you create that? Well, I mean, I think it's. The, the way of looking at it is people don't join Deloitte, and I suspect this is true of many other uh, organisations, for life in the office. They, they choose it increasingly because of purpose. Mm. You know, we, we know that purpose-led organisations are by far and away the most attractive in the employment market. Um, and people tend to join Deloitte because of our very, very big commitment to making an impact that matters at a societal level through influencing business. You don't need to be in an office to do that. Mm. So our shared values are our shared values, whether you are sitting on a beach uh, with your laptop or walking the dog using your mobile or sitting at home at your home desk or being in the office. That said, we do recognise that some time together is really valuable, particularly for those that are on their career development journey and learn a lot of things through role modeling what they see around them so we encourage strongly what we call anchor days lots of different terminology for them but these are points in time where you physically will bring all of your people together as a manager or a director to have that quality time um, and that human connection and those are really popular so there's a balance to be struck and i think sometimes when we say hybrid now we forget that hybrid means two things joined together or two things existing in balance uh, we think of it as being wholly remote and that's you know it's worth reminding ourselves that is not what hybrid means yeah i totally agree you mentioned there about uh, the fact that values are very important in terms of keeping people connected to a culture even if they're not in an office there was a bit of research done by uh, MIT Sloan uh, recently, which looked at something called the culture gap, which is the fact that there are a lot of businesses that in the view, the eyes of their employees aren't living up to the values that they've set. So, for example, I think something like, you know, 90% of banks have the value integrity, right? Um, so the, the, this piece of research suggested that that's not being lived up to. What's your experience of that? And how do you, t- how do you ensure that your people are living the values or that your values are authentic? It's been a challenge in every organisation I've worked in and I suspect might work in in future. Um, ultimately, employees will uh, rightly apply what I call the values test. Mm. Is my manager, are my leaders not just talking the talk, but walking the walk about our shared values? And we've all got examples that we've seen of people in very senior leadership positions who frankly are not bringing those values to life. And yet they seem to be successful and endorsed and embraced. And that's really, really difficult. So the best thing I think we can do is reference our shared values in every piece of communication, in in every conversation that we have, so that they're not words on a wall. That's the worst possible thing, right? Um, They're not just a screensaver. Uh, They're not just a thing you maybe talk about for five minutes in an annual performance review. They are part of the everyday language of the organisation. And I do believe that by making something part of everyday language and everyday conversation, 
it does more than raising awareness. Mm. It actually leads to actions. Mm. So that's the best possible thing that we can do. What, we've been experimenting with various things in my current workplace. For example, um, we have, again, in this world of hybrid, virtual town halls have become very, very important uh, opportunities for our uh, CEO and other uh, executive leaders to talk with uh, our people. And we've been experimenting with um, structuring the agenda of these town halls around our shared values. Mm. So we're touching very, very explicitly on each of them in each town hall. And, and that's landing pretty well. Mm. And how are you facilitating those virtual town halls? Is it some in the room, some out? How's that working? It's been a, it's been a mixture, really. We have delivered most of them wholly virtually. We have tried some to be uh, some in the theatre or, you know, auditorium, wherever, and, and some virtually. Um, the recent uh, transport strikes, rail strikes, that yeah. um, have been dotted throughout this year have actually caused us real problems. Um, that's not a criticism uh, of the rail industry or those working in it whatsoever. Uh, it's just a fact that they seem to have landed quite yeah. often when we were about to do hybrid uh, town halls. So uh, hopefully in, in future we'll do more of those ones. Yeah. One of the things I was chatting to Tom Cagody about actually was that the need potentially in the future for a dedicated role that is uh, dedicated towards facilitating these events because maintaining engagement in the room and outside the room at the same time is quite a challenge, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, really tough. And I mean, we're, we're blessed uh, at Deloitte. You know, we've got an amazing experiential team uh, who do nothing but create internal events for us and, and client-facing events as well. Uh, so we've got a wealth of knowledge to tap into there. But even for them, I would, I would suggest, you know, this is quite a new world that we are living in and we've definitely not nailed it. Yeah. So one of the inspirations, I guess, for this podcast, Delete, Delete, Engage, was the fact that two out of three emails at work are deleted without even being read, uh, which I can quite believe. I mean, I've, it's happened in a lot of the organisations um, I've worked in. Um, now, since, I mean, thinking about the remote element of hybrid working, there's probably been an even greater reliance on email as a mm, channel, mm, hasn't there? Mm. You know, what can we do to combat that? Because that's part of the problem, isn't it? People are just getting overwhelmed by emails. Yeah, it's look, this is a really live topic for me um, and my team at the moment. We conducted a very uh, fulsome audit into how communication is happening across our firm. Uh, and it's kind of weird doing an audit when one of the things that your firm does is auditing. Yeah. Uh, so that was no pressure there, right? To do it to do it robustly. But this this audit didn't probably tell us anything that we weren't already aware of, but it validated uh, the premises. And one of them was being that we were generating way too much comms noise. And of all of the comms noise there was, email was the biggest culprit. Um, and my provocation, if you like, uh, back to the leadership of the organisation is we are hooked on modes of communication that were very and are very relevant to uh, my generational cohort. So, you know, I'm a Gen X and, and I remember my first email account in my workplace and that was a big thing, right? So I've had 25 years of having an email account at work and uh, the people leading at Deloitte, as with leading many other organisations, are kind of in my age group. The generational cohort coming into our organisation, and in fact the largest generational cohort, don't use email in their personal lives, and yet here we are still using it in the workplace. 
So we are doing a lot of work around channels shift to move towards more community-based communications channels. There's obvious internal social things like, uh, you know, like Yammer, yeah. that kind of thing. There are myriad uh, solutions out there. Now, they're not less noisy per se, but the point is you opt in and opt out of those communities because you feel they are relevant to you rather than things just being broadcast out at you um, in a kind of one-size-fits-all way. So I think there's a huge opportunity for us to think more and more about the differing wants and needs in a multi-generational uh, workforce. Uh, you know, res respecting, you know, old fogies like me in, in, in Gen X or, or, or boomers, but also addressing uh, different communication wants and needs from younger millennials and Gen Z. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, we were talking a moment ago about the importance of kind of treating employees like customers. Um, you called it a consumer, consumer grade. grade. Yeah. Now, one important part of treating people uh, and targeting people effectively is is insight. Now, I read an interview that you did a few years ago uh, where you suggested that organisations shouldn't get too hung up on engagement surveys. Now, what did you mean by that? And is, is that something you still believe? Yeah, I do still believe in it, but I'll, I'll explain what I meant by it, lest I upset anyone. Mm -hmm. um, the once a year engagement survey that a lot of us know very well, and I'm, I'm sure people listening into this might be responsible for delivering, um, I think is past its sell-by date. And, and uh, the reason for that is, again, if we think about people as customers or consumers, if we were um, selling chocolate bars, we wouldn't ask our customers once a year what they think about the quality of our chocolate. We would have mechanisms in place to be constantly monitoring the net promoter score or whatever mechanism you want to find out how well our chocolate bars are being received versus the competition, etc. It's an ongoing listening and insight process. So why do you only ask employees once a year how they feel? That's why I believe uh, engagement surveys of that sort are no longer relevant. We have the means now for a much more active, ongoing listening approach to our people, uh, partly using natural data. And what I mean by natural data is stuff that's going on, things that people are saying within the organization that you can apply some pretty smart AI tools to, to measure things like sentiment. So again, right. going back to internal social channels, whether you've got um, Yammer or Slack or whatever it might be, there are sentiment analysis tools. There's a great one called Swoop, for example, uh, which uh, I've used in the past, which is constantly looking at the tone of conversation within social channels, the number of things that are being liked, the number of things that are being shared, um, and aggregating that into a kind of temperature check of where people are at right in that moment. There's tons of really, really smart stuff. We did some really innovative things at Virgin, actually, around kind of live listening to the temperature of the organization. I'm aware that listening to a temperature is a really badly mixed metaphor, but you get the you get the idea. Yeah. Um, and what, what, did you guys work with Laws of Attraction? Laws of Attraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, we, I think, were the first major employer that they had worked with and refined their technologies with and we found it to be not just innovative but very very useful yeah it's that sort of pulse check isn't it kind of that always on and that's really really interesting um 
And, you know, you, you've just given me a sense of the kind of the comms and engagement insight that we should, that we should be gathering. I think we, when we talked uh, before the podcast, you were chatting a little bit to me about uh, behavioural science. Where do you think that comes into it? Is that an extension of this sentiment piece or, or where, where do you see that coming in? So I'm, I'm kind of, you know, the geek in me is fascinated by the behavioural science angle. And again, I think marketeers again, particularly in business to consumer mm. organizations have been using behavioral science for quite some time now to think about marketing campaigns. I'm seeing more and more behavioral science being applied now to internal comms and engagement. Um, and I've certainly on a couple of occasions now brought in behavioral scientists to think about nudging behaviors through communication uh, in the workplace. And, and I, not only found it, you know, mind expandingly brilliant to, to experience and think about, but um, we, we got some good demonstrable outcomes. So um, it's certainly something that I'm going to be trying to apply more of as, as I go forward in my career. Mm. And thinking about the team. Um, you know, you're saying earlier that uh, when you were at BA, there was a period during furlough where they weren't there, so you had to do a lot of it yourself. Now, if you, assuming you've got your team around you, what are the skills and capabilities that you need these days from a, a top functioning internal comms team, would you say? Well, first of all, a few things haven't changed. I need people who can write. Writing is still super important, and I'm still surprised at how poor the quality of writing is in lots of candidates that I review for for roles when I'm recruiting. Um, I think there's always going to be a place for it. Now, of course, writing has changed from being long form prose features from the days when we used to do internal magazines. It's now much more about writing for social. Mm. So almost clickbait type stuff, you know, that's really, really important. Um, and also the, the reason writing is important is often as communicators, we are the people who have to simplify complex business messaging without dumbing it down, uh, but writing it or rewriting it in such a way that it really has impact with different audience groups. So writing is still super important. Um, interpersonal and influencing skills are still super important. You know, me and my team, we are a supporting function. We are there to look after the leaders of our business and it's important we're able to influence them and be a critical friend. I think the things that have changed and that I look for now that I wouldn't have looked at 10, 15 years ago are an insights-driven mindset. So using data and insights in a smart way to continuously improve how we communicate. And I really do not mean this email had X number of clicks. That that's a that to me that's actually still a pretty meaningless mm. measure and yet it's still one uh, we, we turn to. There has to be more to it than than that. Uh, and I think also what I would call an agile mindset, and I don't mean agile with a capital A in terms of the kind of uh, process methodology, but agile in the sense of um, being able to handle ambiguity and work at pace in a very ambiguous, complicated world. You know, you use, you'll have heard a million times that that term VUCA, V-U-C-C-A, yeah. you know, I think it was an American. Volatile, uncertain, complex, isn't it? Ambiguous, yeah. Yeah. So um, that is the world we live in. I think we've probably lived in a VUCA world for a long time, but it feels more now than it's ever been. And I need people who are, if not comfortable in that, 
space at least resilient enough to to cope within that space. You mentioned then the importance of influence. What's your approach to managing upwards? How do you get the ear of the C-suite? Um, well, obviously it's my charm, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I think, Aside from that natural charm. I think the fundamental is find out what matters to the leaders of your organisation and ensure that everything you propose or everything you challenge directly ladders up to what they need mm. um, and is commercially relevant to them. Um, look, I love shiny things and sometimes I do wacky gimmicky things there's something that's going on at work just now that is a complete gimmick but it has to ladder up directly somehow to the strategic goals of the organization and if you can't have a conversation where it's very clear that you are helping to drive your ceo's agenda forward it's probably not the time to have that conversation yeah yeah thinking a a little bit further down the organization but in many ways just as important line managers Mm. you know i think we've talked before about um the importance of line managers and they're often the layer at which things get stuck right they they, you know they it requires there's there's a mix of abilities and inclinations in terms of uh, line managers passing on or continuing the cascade of engagement how can we better equip and empower line managers to, to to ensure more effective engagement Um, I think, first of all, we need to throw less at them. I I do feel, if we're thinking about middle management, for example, um, which is usually the biggest management cohort in an organisation, there's just an awful lot of stuff chucked at them to do. And anybody that's been in a middle management role will know how much work uh, is involved. So um, less noise, back to that noise reduction kind of thing that I mentioned earlier, I think also um, never underestimate the importance of conversation guides, toolkits to help them structure meaningful conversations. We can't assume that everyone is comfortable in what you might call a conversational leadership role. And yet conversation is still the most important, I would argue, the single most important way of influencing your team you can have as a a line manager, Mm. um, because they will turn to you first and foremost for the truth. They won't necessarily look to a CEO or or, or a member of an executive team. They want to know what matters for them in their team, in their unit. And that's the manager's role to have that conversation. So I don't think producing conversation guides and toolkits and investing in training for managers around conversations should be underestimated. No, no. It's a really good answer. Um, Now, you've said in the past that you don't think there's such a thing as a monolithic corporate culture. Mm. Um, I think you said that there are, there's such a thing as a series of microcultures. Um, and, and actually, I've experienced that in organisations I've worked for, where you assume that because, you know, the, the culture at a kind of a brand level leads you to expect something, when you're actually working within a specific team, it can be quite different. But, you know, how do you go about ensuring that, 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 that people in different teams, different microcultures are all kind of in the same kind of cultural direction, if you like? Yeah, and that's where purpose comes back in again, I think. You could have one purpose as an organisation. Now, you can have quite a few different cultures, ways of doing things, ways of making decisions, ways of speaking with one another. That's your culture. Um, As long as you're heading toward that one North Star of your purpose, 
I would argue it doesn't really matter much. Mm. Um, and there are so many models, right, of the interrelationship between purpose, culture, values. I've still not found one that I can get my head around, mm. really. Mm. Um, and I've had culture in my job title more than uh, once. Mm. Um, and I'm an active member of uh, the Culture Council uh, at, at Deloitte. Um, I think we all kind of struggle with how to map it all out. Ultimately, if you give people a clear sense of the purpose of the organization that they are in and that they make some contribution towards the fulfillment of that purpose. The culture bit almost sort of happens in its own way. At Deloitte, for example, you know, I mentioned there's 375,000 of us around the world and we are very different in different geographies, as you'd expect. We do have one set of shared values, however, no matter where you are in Deloitte in the world. And we have one purpose around the world. And that's enough, I think, for us to have a sense of cultural familiarity whilst understanding that it does feel different between, say, the UK and the Netherlands and Australia, where we do work differently and we've got some different drivers and some different atmospheres in the office or whatever. There's still a lot of talk about the big resignation. Mm. And research suggests that candidates are more likely to trust the views of colleagues working within an organisation than maybe the CEO itself. Um, so what role does comms and engagement play in promoting the EVP to attract talent and build that employee advocacy in an authentic way? Yeah, so this is, again, something we, we are talking about uh, very deliberately uh, at work at, at, at the moment. Um, authenticity. Mm. So I think we need to have more communities where people are speaking their truths. Uh, and that's a bit of a strange term perhaps to use, and it may be a bit of a glib one because it's, I think it's used quite often at the moment. But I, do, I, I agree with the premise that people don't look to a CEO necessarily as the most influential or credible person in any organization um, because we don't know them. Um, most of us never come into direct contact with these people. They can be quite distant figureheads because of the nature of their, their jobs. Um, that said, loads of CEOs, uh, my own included, make a huge effort to connect with their people uh, and, and listen to them. But I think comms professionals can create networks and communities within what which there are far more peer-to-peer -peer conversations of people speaking very honestly and authentically about the good and the bad of where they work. And in terms of the EVP, the Employee Value Proposition, I think that's a really interesting space because back to your one of your earlier points about the gap, through those communities and networks, you can listen to whether there is a gap between perhaps what people thought they were going to get when they came in the door to what they actually are getting once they're in role. So can't, can't do enough to uh, to stimulate and nurture these peer-to-peer these -peer communities. Mm -hmm. um, and just a final question, really about uh, you, really, and your own learn approach to learning. I talked to um, Ronan Dunn recently, who was my old CEO at O2, who kindly agreed to come on to the, to the podcast. And he talked about um, 
uh, the importance of curiosity and having a learning mindset. Now, you know, you're someone who's been doing this job for 26 years. You would think there's not too much you don't know about internal comms and engagement, but I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that's, I'm sure there are still things that you're case. learning about. So, you know, what, what, what are the areas of personal development that you're really focused on at the moment? So, so for me, I'm beginning to get to, you know, I'm nearing 50 and I'm beginning to get to that point in my career where I think about the, the, the people that come after me, really, and what more I can do to build really strong succession uh, into my team. Mm -hmm. You know, th th there are brilliantly bright, capable uh, people who are on their career journeys whom I see as my responsibility to help get to where they want to get to. Some of them want to get to what I'm doing right now. And if I can share my learnings or more often share my mistakes uh, with people, then great. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy about that. I, I think the curiosity thing is a good one as well, though, because, I mean, I mentioned, I think earlier, you know, I've got a real geek side to me. And I, what I don't do, um, unlike a lot of super smart peers of mine, is I don't tend to read books about internal communication. I, mm. I no. There's the odd one or two that I do. Mm. I don't tend to read um, learned articles about that. What I am fascinated by is stuff like AI, digitization, uh, robotics, biomimetics, all that kind of stuff. Fu futurologists, kind mm. of, or futurists, whatever you want to call them, mm. I find really fascinating people. Even if 95% of what they're talking about is never going to come to pass, mm. the, the kind of deliberate thought about what the world might look and feel like in 5, 10, 15 years' time, mm. for me as a communicator, I think is really, really interesting. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's kind of my development is maybe kind of living out some side hustle as maybe beginning to carve out a role as a futurologist if only I had the brain power to yeah, kind of yeah, do yeah, it yeah. right yeah yeah well I think with moonshots you can kind of it, the more creative the better yeah actually. And exactly who's going to sue you if they if you don't get it quite right, right? Yeah. yeah um now that's really fascinating thank you for that Drew really enjoyed our conversation thank you so Drew, I ask each of my podcast guests uh, to answer six quickfire comms-related questions wow. in around 90 seconds. Okay. Are you up for that? Um, yes. You sure? Yeah, nervously. Okay. Good, good. Right, here we go. Um, sum up your communication style in three words. Direct, human, uh, in English. <laughs> Plain English. <laughs> Plain English. Of all the comms you receive, roughly what percentage do you delete without reading? 30%. What was the last message that landed in your inbox that really grabbed your attention? Uh, it was something about my pension yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Funny that. Yeah, yeah. Make sure that it matters to the, uh, the yeah, receipt. Yeah, it matter, yeah. Yeah. In your opinion, what's the one thing a business can do to boost engagement? Never forget that there are people in any process. What makes a good communicator? Emotional intelligence. Which communicator, alive or dead, do you most admire? Oof. Um, I'm going to go for the amazing uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Fantastic. Drew, thank you so much. Loved that conversation. Really thank you very it. much Thank for you for your me. time. Great stuff. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. 
If you'd like to hear more from Delete Delete Engage, including live updates and early access to each podcast episode, why not sign up to the newsletter at deletedeleteengage.substack.com.